Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to this year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rorkraut. And today we have our first episode of 2023, which is why we said this year's Oscars. We're officially, I think we're 10 weeks away from the Oscars. So a lot of that coverage coming soon. But today we'll be talking about our year in movie going in 2022, what that was like for us going through our top five films of the year. Then in honor of the 2022 sight and sound poll that came out listing the greatest films of all time, we will be sharing our top 10 films of all time and how we came up with those lists. It was a very challenging hair pulling exercise for me. It really was. It took me that extra week to really finalize everything. Everything else we're talking about, I do love the switch to this year. It's making things feel more real. And also, Happy New Year, all of our listeners. We're excited for not only another year, but to finish this award season, a new later season once that ends, with all of our regular content after the Contender Series happens, and that will be starting very soon. So I'm excited to dive into our top list of the year of all time and If we had recorded this last week, my list would have been very different. I had an amazing last week of movie watching for 2022, which ended on a high note, and I didn't really expect that. So I'm very happy with how things went the last few days and week or two of 2022. I completely agree. Taking our little break week was so helpful, too, because building my sight and sound list, there were so many films I wanted to rewatch or to Mm -hmm. see for the first time just to confirm, you know, where it would be on my list. And some movies were just very secure in their position, but I think I got a new perspective on them. So yeah, the break week was definitely good. But what was movie going for you like in 2022? Just what were some of the highlights? How did you feel about the year as a whole? I think overall, you know, it was a very divisive year. I feel like more than most. And I didn't have like a ton of movies I really, really loved from this year. And maybe compared to last year, it's about the same. But I felt like there were so many movies this year that people ran to go see, loved to rewatch, and I just didn't feel the same about them. And I think that's always the case when you overhype something in your head or you read a lot of reviews or, you know, there's so much happening on Twitter and with blockbusters coming out and whatnot. So I guess that's fairly normal for me. But there were movies that I loved. But I think overall, I would say I was not as hot on 2022 as most. How do you feel about the year? Where do you stand in terms of not on specific movies, but just like generally? I think in comparison to 2021, what's interesting is that I found this year for me as a moviegoer to be so much more enjoyable than 2021, weirdly, because I think I really made a commitment to myself to just get back to loving movies and finding new movies that I would love from maybe new directors or some of my old favorites. And I did a lot of rewatching as well. I returned to a lot of classic films that I love. And I watched a lot of new ones, too, which was really rewarding. I think, like, looking at my year in film, I watched more older movies than I did 2022 releases. And I think that really just made my relationship to movies that much stronger. I feel like I I just, I love film more than I ever have before, which is really cool. But thinking about the 2022 releases, what's interesting is that I loved a lot of movies, 
But I also really didn't like a lot of movies. And I feel like normally the movies that I don't like, I'm just sort of meh on. But this year there were movies that I actively disliked, but the movies that I loved, I really do adore. So I'm excited to talk about those. And yeah, I feel like there were a lot of really strong films for me, but they really didn't come to me until the second half of the year. I guess I should clarify because you explain it a little better. Like being net negative on a year, I think I just had so many more movies than usual that, yeah, I was visibly upset about or had reactions to more than just like, okay, this is like a three, three and a half review. Like I watched it. I understand it. I don't really care for it. Let's move on. It was like I had very passionate (laughs) watches in the theater, mostly, I mean, some at home, Mm -hmm. but just ones that I like couldn't wrap my head around or couldn't stop thinking about for mm-hmm. worse. So I think that's what I mean overall this year. Last year I had Dune that I really loved and this year I'll mention a few others that I think will turn into rewatches. And those were some of what I watched this past week or two that kind of solidified for me that yes, this is a movie that I want to keep around. I will watch again. So let's get into our favorite films of 2022. We can start off by mentioning some honorable mentions. Do you have like a top six through 10 for the year? Okay, yeah. So my six through 10, Santo Mare, The Banshees of Inisherin, The Fablemans, EO, and Crimes of the Future, the David Cronenberg movie. I think I have mine in order. It's kind of close, though. I could switch some of these around. But mine are All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, Santo Mare, She Said, Close, and The Batman. I always forget about the Batman and how much you liked the Batman. (laughs) That's one thing that's so hard with this year is that we had a few movies that came out super early. And it's always hard with those, like thinking back nine months ago or reading a review and like Mm -hmm. believing what you wrote that long ago. And (laughs) I didn't rewatch this one, but I remember feeling that three hours, the weight of that, and just enjoying what they did with this franchise and taking it in a new direction. So I had to include it. All of these were four and a halfs on Letterboxd for me. So I'm pretty confident with these. I'm excited to get into our top fives. I think I'll just do my five first since it was in your honorable mentions list. And that is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which is a documentary by Laura Poitras and It is just one of the most stunning, essential works of documentary filmmaking I have seen maybe ever. What this film is about, for anyone who doesn't know, it chronicles the life of Nan Golden, who is an artist and an activist. It goes through her life from childhood through her living in New York and becoming a photographer and living through the 70s and the 80s in New York. But then in present day, it looks at her life as an activist against the Sackler family and looking at the opioid crisis and Purdue Pharma. It is such an emotional experience. There was a moment, I'm going to bring up crying quite a bit today when I talk about my movies, whether it's this list or (laughs) the sight and sound list. But there was a moment in this movie when Nan Golden talks about the death of one of her friends from AIDS and I just started crying and I didn't stop until the very end of this movie and the reveal of the title and why it's called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is one of the most like mm-hmm. stunning realizations I've had in film this year. So I 
highly recommend it. You know, the, the opioid crisis is something that has affected so many lives. And there are so many powerful moments, I think, connecting her activism today and the life that Nan Golden has had and what's led her to this moment and to this powerful change that she's making. It is just, I thought it was a perfect documentary. I think so too. It was so chilling at times to see the effect that the Sackler family had on her and so many others. But what their group did in order to fight them and to see their power against this Goliath was so heartwarming, so inspiring. And that also brought me to tears. I loved this documentary. I hope it wins. I hope it has a really good chance at the Oscar. But I think the way that Poitras used Golden's photography to tell these stories about people she knew, her chosen family, and her experiences when she was in Paris and getting beaten up by her boyfriend and showing what her face looked like. She was so good with using her words and describing these moments and seeing this happen. Like the photos were from the past, obviously, but also in real time going to the Met, seeing them picket outside certain buildings and then get arrested for fighting against AIDS and losing their friends. It was such a powerful film. And I think, yeah, one of the ones that really affected me this year. Looking at my list now, just jumping ahead, I'm not going to reveal what the films are, but I noticed that all five of my films in my top five, in some way, you mentioning her photography made me think of this, have to do with what it means to capture something through art, whether that's like through film or through photography or through music, just to remember something or to create something very specific and meaningful and powerful that runs through all five of my films. So... Thank you for making me realize that. (laughs) So what is your number five? So my number five, not that I need to preface this, but I feel like (laughs) rom-coms, comedies don't really get their due, especially at the Oscars. And I think, you know, when we're talking about the best movies of the year or of all time, there are some, like I remember Bridesmaids coming through that year and really having an impact on people. But again, it's very rare. So my Mm -hmm. number five is Fire Island. This was the movie that I watched the most in 2022. It's just a movie that really made me happy to see the representation on screen. And yes, like it wasn't perfect all around, but it was a movie that accomplished two different things. One in telling a cute, funny story. And on the other hand, was an amazing adaptation of Pride and Prejudice in a modern way in this new light. And I think what Joel Kimbooster did and Andrew on in directing, it was an incredible cast. Like everything about this movie just exudes happiness. And I think that's something that I was really looking for this year too in films. I think when we talk about topless as well, it, it gets pretty serious and intense. And I think finding this beam of light in not the darkness, <laughs> but finding some joy and levity was so necessary. And this is one for sure that I can rewatch over and over again and find new things, find happiness, laugh, just find mm-hmm. this other family that I loved. I love this. A character dies in every single film on my list. So I <laughs> echo you about the seriousness. And I think, yeah, we we need movies like this. And this really was, I think, the perfect summer watch. I am a stickler on literary adaptations. And this is a really, really good one. 
And I, I still, still need to shout out Matt Rogers and mm. his performance as Lydia because it's just perfect. <laughs> it needs to be taught in classrooms across America. <laughs> and about him specifically, I love that Marissa Tomei was approached at some point late in 2022 about this scene. And she was like, oh, I love it so much. And oh, good. I don't know if she had seen the movie or just the scene, but I love that she is aware it happened. She approves of his performance. <laughs> okay, what is your number four? My number four is Jordan Peele's latest film, Nope, which is my favorite film of his to date. I love when directors swing for the fences, and this felt like such a vital next step for him and for his career. I think we've seen a lot of directors, you know, get blank checks after they do an incredible job on an earlier film, right? He won an Oscar for Get Out. He goes and makes Us, which is like more of your Hitchcockian horror film. And here he makes a film unlike anything I've really ever seen before. It's all about spectacle. It has these incredible performances by Steven Yun and Daniel Kaluuya, who I would personally nominate for Best Actor this year. Kiki Palmer, incredible. We've talked about her so much and just how much we love everything that she brings to that role all of the charisma of the character and I just love how the characters also play with genre conventions this is a western it's a sci-fi film it tackles film history and for me this year we got a lot of films that talked about the power of cinema and specifically cinema as spectacle thinking of you know Damien Chazelle's Babylon and then looking more personally into like the Fablemans but this might be the one I think that feels the most current and the most provocative in what it's saying about the idea of spectacle what people watch why they watch what they watch why they can't look away from it and I thought about the creature in the film, Jean Jacket, and what Jean Jacket does and how that connects to the ways that people talk about media and people talk about films as things to consume, which I've never liked that term, but that is a way that people talk about art today. They consume it. And that just feels so impersonal to me, but it's exactly what this creature does in the film. So I love that. And I love how it looks at film history and the casualties that come with that history and in where we're going in the future. I was really moved by it. I love the text in the movie, the sound, the visual effects, the score. I could talk about this movie forever. It was also one of my most watched movies. I saw this three times in theaters. I could not get enough of it. So yeah, Jordan Peele's Nope. Peele really has solidified himself as one of these huge filmmakers of this new generation but i can't wait for what's next for him i love that he played with genre here and brought about these discussions of old hollywood you know he talked about the horse and the cinematographer in the film i love how he plays with past and present and then what he is trying to achieve in the film you know achieving the unattainable or what hasn't been done before getting that perfect shot that is i think what new social medias are doing and you know tied into real life really really well it's one that i definitely want to watch it's on peacock right now and yeah you mentioned the performances we talked about this on our episode so go back definitely listen to this we talk about all of jordan peele's films but kiki palmer just stole the show for me obviously daniel kaluuya he's a mainstay for 
Jordan Peele too. Hopefully he's in his next film. But Kiki Palmer just I it's kind of been her year. She's been everywhere. She deserves it. Seeing her on the big screen. I loved that she was such a big part of this movie. And, you know, the team that they all formed her, Brandon Perea and Daniel Kaluuya in fighting Jean Jacket. I definitely want to note the cinematography again. I'm hoping it has a chance at the Oscars. It just has some of my favorite shots of the year. You know, seeing Jean Jacket transform later on, but just fly across the screen. Just incredible. Peel really has an eye for making things his own. And I think he really did that here. I mean, you can think back to Get Out and Us too, and just certain objects or images that stick with you. And Nope is definitely up there as well. I love it so much. What is your number four? My number four was a new watch last week. Took me by surprise. It is Return to Soul. So this is Cambodia's entry for the Oscars. It's on the shortlist. And that surprised me because it's a film that takes place in Korea of a French-Korean character and mainly uses the French language. So I was like very confused, but I just love what this film is discussing. And I think Park Ji-min gives one of my favorite performances of the year. So she was adopted as a baby by this French family. She was born in Korea. And so now she's a young adult and she was supposed to go to Japan on a trip, but the flights were canceled because of the tsunami. So she decides to go to Korea instead. And obviously that's where she was born and where she's from. So it gets into like, she hears about the adoption agency, the home that she was in, and kind of starts to investigate her past and her parents and if she can contact them, how she can do that. Do they want to speak to her now after all these years? So she's on this journey, this unexpected journey and finding out who she is and what her parents are like, while also entering a country that she is so foreign to. And I think seeing that, especially in the beginning, we see her with these people who live in Korea, friends she makes, and their customs and cultures are just so different to hers. Like the way they talk about pouring the soju for somebody else to show that you are being taken care of by your friends and family. And the way she takes the bottle and pours it herself, (laughs) it just sent me. So it's the way we interact with people that are of different cultures and behave differently in society just based on how you grow up. So I think the way she navigates her journey and how this story is told just totally took me aback. And there's just incredible filmmaking. So beautiful. Again, shots that I absolutely love brought me to tears later on, just the way things are framed and blocked. So did you get to see this one? Yeah, it's just right outside of my top 10. I love this character. She is such a whirlwind. I love how the camera follows her and it surprises you at every turn. But for me, I really did keep coming back to this woman, Park Ji Min. This is her first film role. How? Just (laughs) such a talent. Mm -hmm. And time passes in varying ways throughout the film so that also threw me for a loop and the way her appearance changes her wardrobe her makeup her hair it just makes you think about lots of things about your own life too even if you can't relate to the story it's just how you relate to the things around you 
your friends, what influences you. Just amazing. I love it. I hope it comes out wide. I think it's getting a release in January. Okay. Yeah, I hope it makes it to the final five. I'm rooting for it. Okay, number three. What is your number three? So my number three is a film that I've been talking about since I first saw it on July 8th, 2021. (laughs) (laughs) And that is Koganada's After Yang. Yes, I've talked about this movie for what feels like years at this point, but it had this really weird delayed release from A24. And I had just been waiting and waiting and waiting for people to see this because for me, it is simply put one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen on a formal level in its execution, but also in what it's saying about the meaning of life through connections, through memory, through relationships. It is just so cathartic. And it features some of my favorite performances of the year, Colin Farrell, of course, but also Justin H. Min, who plays Yang, this android. It's a really tricky role because he is not a human in the traditional sense, but he's also taking us through his memories and we get to see, you know, what he experienced through this family and through his time with them. We talked about this film on one of our earlier episodes in the year and we compared it to the tree of life. And I feel like that is, that's the closest comparison I can, I can give it to like the ways that it talks about life and death and how you feel about your place in the world and what it all means. So yeah, I highly recommend after Yang. This was probably the most meditative watch for me this year. Again, an earlier release. I saw it in May It's for all of my slow cinema listeners out there. (laughs) Absolutely. And (laughs) also has my favorite opening credit sequence of the year. The amazing dance that they do. It contrasts so well to the rest of the movie and how we learn who these characters are as a family unit. And then that's kind of, you know, destroyed as we go through this journey after Yang, literally. But yeah, the moment when they're out in the field and he's taking the picture of them has really stuck with me. I think that's a beautiful scene, way to summarize this film. Yeah, I completely agree. And speaking of beautiful, (laughs) what is your number three? My number three is Bones and All. The rewatch was just as powerful. I love Taylor Russell's performance so much. I think Timmy is a great foil in a way to her, but also I think Guadagnino, it just knows how to control his actors and let them live in the frame as well. Yeah, beautiful. The cinematography just out of this world. I think another reference to the Tree of Life that I love to make because it's just frames you just want to sit with. The final shot just lingers and you listen to the end credits. You like, I don't want to move. You know, it it just sticks with you and the way that Guadagnino deals with gore but makes it artistic and turns this fable this story into something that others can connect with people make the guadagnino army hammer cannibalism joke but i think it's so much deeper than that and it doesn't relate at all (laughs) (laughs) so i i definitely recommend this one but it also just has an amazing soundtrack and score that helps the film linger and adds this very sensible sensual beauty to everything it is a very disturbing movie but also one that's very romantic even with its violence and i want taylor russell to find i mean i love her work with luca guadagnino here but it makes me also want her to be 
found and discovered by a director who's similar to Altman, maybe like a PTA, because I feel like she has this almost like 70s naturalistic quality to her that I hope directors can continue to bring out in the future. Yeah, I think she'll be doing just fine. I can Definitely. I can see a strong future <laughs> for her. Yeah. Okay, number two, we're almost there. What is your number two? Okay, so my number two is a movie that we discussed on our 2022 movie preview special last year. And in that episode... <laughs> I said, this is, quote, a Sophia movie when I read the logline, and it turns out that it really was. (laughs) And that is The Eternal Daughter, Joanna Hogg's latest film starring Tilda Swinton. I'll read the same note that I read last time, which is what this film is about. In this ghost story, a middle-aged daughter and her elderly mother must confront long-buried secrets When they return to their former family home, a once grand manor that has become a nearly vacant hotel, brimming with mystery. Yes, on the surface, that sounds like a movie that is completely made for me, but it was a movie for me in much deeper ways because I just didn't expect the ways that this movie would emotionally annihilate me as I sat in this theater I also was lucky enough to see it with my sister later, where Joanna Hogg did a Q&A with Martin Scorsese afterwards, and we were both just very overwhelmed. I think this is a movie for mothers and daughters. Like Other people can definitely get a lot out of it, but if you are a mother or a daughter, this movie, I think, will hit you in a way that is not normal. <laughs> it might be unlike anything you've ever experienced. And... I think just personally, you know, like I, I look exactly like my mom did when she was my age and the way that my grandma did. So it's always been just, I think it's a weird, beautiful and odd thing to be able to look at someone and think, oh, like one day this will be me. And it's weird for my mom to look at me and be like, that was, you know, that's me in my late 20s. Like that was me at that point in my life and how connected we are to Our mothers, not just if you look like them, but on this like deep, spiritual, emotional level, it's like something with your soul. It's a very deep shared bond and experience. Joanna Hogg takes that a step further by having Tilda Swinton play the mother and the daughter. She plays both characters. So it gets at that. I think your mother is one of the first ghosts that you see. And so is your daughter, right? It's a different version of yourself, essentially. And... This is all like very heady and academic, but that's why it hit me in such a hard, deep way, in addition to just being a beautiful gothic ghost story, which that is my bag. I love those so much. It's just exquisite. It reminded me of like Nicholas Rogue and Alfred Hitchcock and all these great filmmakers that I love, but it's, I don't know, it's, it just, it's deep. It will never leave me. I mean, I think all of that explains why it connected more with you and not me. Not that I didn't like it, but, you know, it was a tougher watch at Venice when I saw it with Bennett. Not something I, like, totally saw into and connected with, but appreciated Tilda's performance, the slow burn of the direction, the ghost story of it all. But I think that adds to, you know, her referencing old Hollywood, too. You know, you mentioned Hitchcock, mm-hmm. the Rebecca of it. The Innocence, too, the Jack Clayton film that I really like. I was reminded of that one. Yeah, just amazing that you got to hear her speak about it as well. It's what we love about festivals, but yeah, amazing. Yeah, she has become over the past like three years, one of my favorite working filmmakers. 
I've been so spoiled to have three movies from her in three years, mm-hmm. basically. I mean, The Souvenir is 2019, Souvenir Part 2 I saw in 21, Eternal Daughter 22. So I hope she comes out with another one in like two years and I can continue to be happy. (laughs) So another thing I forgot to mention at the beginning of this episode that stood out for movie going for me in 2022 is that I think over the past few years as a show, we have sort of had the reputation of being like Siskel and Ebert and disagreeing fairly frequently. I don't know about frequently. Maybe not frequently, but sometimes like you will really love a movie and I'm just like, no, not for me. Or it's like, it's the opposite, right? And this year, that was not the case. We agreed on almost every single movie, which Mm -hmm. maybe we are just spending too much time recording, (laughs) but I don't know. So all this to say, your number two is my number one. So I think we can talk about this one together. What is that film? This was so close to being a number one, too. It's why I had to do so many rewatches to confirm Mm -hmm. how he felt about things. And this, another ghost story of sorts, will Mm -hmm. linger for years. I think it should be studied for decades to come in film classes. Just a powerhouse of a film and my most sensational film of 2022. And that is Todd Field's Tar. We love Lydia Tar here, and God, we could do a whole nother review analysis today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll try not to, but I think it grew on rewatch for me. When you see it the first time, you're understanding this world. You're taking in this incredible screenplay that he has written. I just don't understand how, because it is magnificent. The way we are introduced to Lydia Tar and the way we see her character break down and these idiosyncrasies come through in her character with Petra, with her wife, with her students, with other musicians. And it kind of is a slow burn for me, but there's such ferocity to the filmmaking that, again, shots stick with me. My favorite moment of sound throughout the year happens. My favorite edit. Mm-hmm. Ugh, it's a very clear I know moment. the edit you're talking about. It's so good. It's a very clear moment. <laughs> I think we've heard about Tar a few times throughout the year from, I, I think, mm-hmm. for both of us. But why is this your number one? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think I need two hours, really, to go through why it's my number one. But every so often, there are films that just fully take over my life for whatever the period of time is. Sometimes it's years. Sometimes it's weeks. This one has really taken over since October when I first saw it. It just reminds me of the type of film that we don't get anymore and that we really have never gotten about a woman ever before. And I love movies about characters who are horrifically good at their jobs to a point where it consumes them and takes over their lives and they can't really see anything else. And all of the relationships that they have are affected by work and the ways that they look at work, you know, thinking of Phantom Thread or Network, like these movies that I really love. I think this fits into that box, but also it is so, so different. I love the world that Todd Field creates. It is so specific and it takes you a minute to get used to it, right? We're introduced to this character, Lydia Tarr, at the New Yorker Festival with Adam Gopnik, right? And it's it's sort of it tilts you off balance in a way because you're like, wait, that's actually Adam Gopnik. Mm-hmm playing himself, but then we have Kate Blanchett playing Lydia Tarr, and 
they're going through this extreme, like extremely specific world of classical music with all of these specific reference points and the editing to show her being fitted for a suit and selecting her next piece of music she's going to conduct and what she's going to look like when she's conducting this. It name drops. It does everything like that. And it feels so serious, but it also feels satirical. And I love that too. I love the the tone and how masterfully Field plays with tone in this movie. And I love, and I've said this many times, that this movie allows her to be cruel and allows her to be arrogant and seductive and extremely intelligent and flawed. And that is not, these are not things that are afforded to women in lead roles nearly ever. And I love that I'm saying all of this and that Lydia Tarr would scold me for saying that and would say that I shouldn't be saying that about her, that gender doesn't, you know, come into it for her. But it's just the truth. And I see this movie almost as like a fable of sorts about not just ambition and risk, but about what would happen to a woman if she got that sort of power, because that so rarely happens. So... It's deep, and it has. I think about it all the time. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. Just talking about award season for a tiny bit. I love Michelle Yeoh. I think she should win. But I think in the next few years, ten years down the line, I will think back and say Kate Blanchett had the best performance of 2022. From the first moment that we see her standing there waiting to go out to the podium, and she does this like wispy thing with her hand and her breath. Mm -hmm. I remember watching it for the first time and just thinking, who is this? You know, how did she come up with this? What are we getting ourselves into as viewers? It's just such a minute expression and moment for her that she really just went there the whole time. And the way Field uses these long takes very long takes you know you talk about Mm -hmm. the scene with the students it's like a 15 16 minute scene and the beginning with Gopnik and the way she just powers through these monologues with this confidence but there's like some pretentiousness behind it too in the way we talk about her being an EGOT winner and this verbiage that is just beyond yeah The voice that Blanchett does, Mm -hmm. her American accent, is so, to me, perfect for this character because it feels so intellectual and, like, East Coast. Mm -hmm. I am trying so hard to come off as this incredibly wealthy, pretentious expat who has all of these achievements behind me, but I can't be bothered in my low register that I have. Like, it's just, it's so great. It's exactly what that character should sound like. When I first heard her voice... In that, when she's going through, and she's like, time is the thing. You know, she's doing all yeah. of that. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, I am hooked. I love, love, love her in this movie. And, yeah, I mean, with Best Actress, I mean, this year we have we have great performances. And I love Michelle Yeoh, too. And I think that with Kate Blanchett, for me, it's one of those towering performances that Gene Hackman would give or Pacino would give or Daniel Day-Lewis would give. Again, I'm listing all of these men because... Those are the types of people who are often able to play these types of characters because they are written for men. Mm -hmm. It's all in the role and we could go on, but I know, but time is the thing. So you need to, we need to move. (laughs) We can, we can keep going. We have a lot of movies to talk about. Okay. Well, since that was your number one, I'll go over mine. 
It is Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. I was wondering if you would do this at number one. So <laughs> it's great. I mean, I, I love it too. Uh, I think my rewatch of it was an even more emotional experience. Like it was just waterworks the whole time. And I was trying to do it silently because I was with a different friend this time. And I don't think it, <laughs> he did like it, but it just it resonates with me so much. And I think the power of what Spielberg does with his camera and then also in the story and these performances and it being about his family, you know, there's a lot happening here. But connecting to Sammy and seeing how Sammy, who inevitably becomes Spielberg, is introduced to cinema and the camera and editing and using this to channel his emotions and grow is just so magical. And it was another experience on film this year that kind of took me by surprise. We've mentioned this before. We had West Side Story last year. That was also in my top five. And getting another Spielberg so soon, we were kind of worried and It was such a different choice for him as well. It's never done this directly personal of a story before. So seeing all of that on screen, him include Easter eggs of his previous works and then how John Ford factored into his rise into film as well and those inspirations, the way he included shots of Ford's films in the movie. He really put his heart and soul into it. And I I loved it. I loved the script with Tony Kushner. I think it's much more provocative than it's getting credit for. People love this movie, but it does things that I would not expect from Spielberg or from a director making a movie about his own life. It really, I think he really bears his heart and soul when he's making this. It is, I think Gabriel Abel is Mm. a great discovery as Sammy and it does feature like some of my favorite scenes of the year and shots of the year and I love the way that it it meanders and moves through all of these different key moments in Sammy's life so it's a great pick yeah I the one troubling thing that didn't factor into my decision at all was how divisive this year was and how the box office played into how a lot of people responded to movies you know when things flopped People had a lot of things to say, and I think this was one of those. I muted the term box office. <laughs> it's very smart. To, it just had to be done. I was like, I don't care about this. Let me just watch the movies I want to watch. It has nothing to do with a movie's success or how well a film is made. And just to see his craft, I mean, the first shot is a longer take, and it perfectly introduces us to these characters. You know, we it's a crane shot. We see Sammy. He's scared. We're about to see the greatest show on earth and on each side of him we have these two people we have his dad and his mom and they're differing ways of life and thinking and uh, there was just such an ease to the story and i think looking at runtime again not something that fully matters but it's kind of why i put the rewatch off for a little bit because it is two and a half hours the time goes by it's not slow at all but yeah, I don't think it feels long. That could have impacted things for certain people. Sure, that's fine. But it's one that really pays off in the end. So if you can see this, if you haven't seen this, it's still out in theaters. We'll probably come to streaming at some point, VOD. Yeah. But my favorite movie of the year. It's a good pick. So let's just, before we get into our little mini game, let's just run through our top fives again. You can go first. 
My number five was Fire Island. Number four, Return to Soul. Number three, Bones and All. Number two, Tar. And number one, The Fablemans. Great list. My number five is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. My number four is Nope. My number three is After Yang. My number two is The Eternal Daughter. And my number one is Tar. Love that. Tar on Tar. (laughs) The book of the year. Rat on rat. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we did this last year too, but we're going to do some superlatives for this year. So these are a little bit more rapid fire, but we're going to go through like some favorite experiences from the year, favorite movies that we saw. So, okay, to start out, what was your favorite film festival experience? I mean, New York is always up there. You know, my viewing of Tar and seeing Cate Blanchett being like four rows away from her is just insane. But I have to say Venice, you know, that was just such a unique experience this year. Kind of an awful travel story. (laughs) Oh my God, I can't even think about that. I will remember and try to forget forever, but... um, (laughs) Seeing 11 movies in three days with Bennett, a lot of them not great, (laughs) I will say. (laughs) But Santo Mare in my top 10 really had an impact on me. And I think more than just the movie watching, it was being in Venice. I think when I go abroad, I don't really see movies that often unless it's something special. So to be in one of the most unique cities to me that I had been in before, but experiencing it differently being on the Lido and with different people and seeing the posters and celebrities and the red carpet and whatnot and all of that you know the the hoopla Mm -hmm. festivals but also it's just magical it's fun you meet just different people that you would never meet otherwise yeah Um, my favorite experience this year was seeing tar at New York Film Festival Not a very exciting answer coming from me, very predictable, but another fun thing at New York Film Festival was seeing they have all of these free talks that they do, and I went to one with Joanna Hogg and Kelly Reichert, and it was so inspiring, and and Kelly Reichert is absolutely hilarious and was talking about how she doesn't like when people call her movies small films, and she went on a little little tiny rant about the the American blockbuster, which was very fun. (laughs) Good for her. Yes. Okay, so next superlative, we have favorite first time watch, not from this past year. Okay, so my favorite first time watch I watched last week, which was John Daleman, which will come up again very soon. And my other favorite first time watch, I had seen the movie before, but this is my first time watching it in theaters, was Mulholland Drive, which I needed to see it in a theater, I think, to really unlock a lot of things in the movie that I never understood before watching it at home and mine were the insider which we kind of touched on for the Pacino episode and then all that jazz which I love it yeah that was also a really fun episode and I think a movie that will stick with me yeah Mm -hmm. okay and then least favorite movie of the year okay so there really are a couple that could fit into this box Mm -hmm. but I do have to say The worst theatrical experience I had all year was seeing Blonde in a theater. Mm -hmm. I never want to go through that again or anything like that ever again. Yeah. Yeah, I would say Blonde and The Sun. I watched The Sun at home and it really was just as bad as you and Bennett described. (laughs) Maybe worse. Um, Well, we have the same bottom tier of the year. Um, These are also mine. Blonde also because, yeah, watching this with a crowd, not great, but also would I have finished it at home? No. So maybe 
it was the only way to see this movie, but this was when somebody needed medical attention. We talked about it before. We don't have to go over it again, but it was also the sun for me. I saw the trailer recently. It was before living. Yeah. I saw living the Bill Nye film and they played the sun trailer before. And it was just one of the most oddly edited trailers that I've seen in a long time. It's funny to watch having seen the movie because there's a lot of editing, quick edits, and it's all in voiceover. There's no like diegetic dialogue from the scenes that they're showing, which was funny what? because of how oh, that is funny. bad it was, you know. Yeah. <laughs> these... <laughs> if there was like their faces weren't turned to us and I was like, okay, that tracks. <laughs> That's really strange. It's just, you know, the the face of Nicholas and he's not talking or <laughs> Hugh Jackman is yelling for 2 seconds and then they cut Vanessa Kirby sitting there. So, I mean, it's is it coming out in January? Now? Yeah, it's coming out in January. Okay. I think the weirdest thing to me is just the dialogue. That was the most surprising thing watching it because mm-hmm. with all of the nuance that was present about dementia in The Father, none of that is here related to yeah. what Nicholas is going through. Mm-hmm. And the way that the characters speak to each other is like they're from a bad play from an- another decade. It'll be like, mm-hmm. oh, hello, was I disturbing you? No 17-year-old kid is talking to his parents that way. Uh, he, like, walks in on them. Yeah, I just... I'm going to start using <laughs> some of the lines about Nicholas on you. Nicholas, oh how are you feeling today? <laughs> Nicholas, why weren't you in school? Maybe something we'll come back to on After Dark. <laughs> we might have a to. While. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what was your most disappointing movie of the year? I feel like we talked about both of mine on our most anticipated or, you know, 2022 films early in the year. And one is The Whale, not because I revere Aronofsky, but I think I was just excited to see what this would be about. You know, all we knew was a 600 pound man going Mm -hmm. through something and there was Moby Dick involved. But the way, oh my God, just what we experienced and also poor dialogue, delivery, an uncomfortable like play adaptation too just Mm -hmm. very disappointing and then also with Babylon just because I do love Chazelle and it didn't hit for me it was a very divisive film on its own like there were parts that I did like or love Mm -hmm. and there are parts that I didn't like or hated it was such a roller coaster of a film so not one I really want to rewatch, but maybe I should but I think just overall in the year Chazelle about film, you know, kind of a follow up to La La Land, which I love, love, love. In that way, this was disappointing. That's fair. I mean, Babylon, we're going to have to talk about it at some point. I know we don't have it built into (laughs) our schedule in a formal episode, but we will have to dive into it because there is it is a rich text. There's Mm -hmm. a lot going on there to talk about. I don't know. It's it's a hard one to talk about. So we'll have to make time for it at some point. Mm -hmm. But my answers here are men. Alex Garland's movie, which is about a man who wants to tell the world that he understands women and feminism and does not. And Don't Worry Darling, which has a really bad script, despite just how beautiful it looks. There's a lot to like about the movie, but for me, I just, I had so much trouble taking it seriously because of the script. Men I didn't see for how poorly you reviewed it when you saw it i said "Mm, yeah yeah maybe i can skip and then don't worry darling florence Pugh loved her yeah i think it could have been made a little bit differently Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. And then the movie that you most wish you could push into the Oscar race. I wish I could push Nope into the Oscar race in a really real way, as in like giving Jordan Peele a director nomination and nominations for its actors and things like that. I would love to see this movie. It is for me, this is the type of movie that deserves like 10 to 12 Oscar nominations. And I would also say The Eternal Daughter. Tilda Swinton absolutely deserves to be nominated for Best Actress. And I wish that the Academy could appreciate movies that are about filmmaking that are like this. Maybe she'll have her day. It's just, she's a great filmmaker. It's just the Academy, you know. I She loves subtleties, and the Academy mm-hmm. usually does not. <laughs> and then mine, I would push Bones and All. I say this just because it didn't show up on the shortlists. It wasn't in score, which I think is phenomenal. Cinematography, it's also more of a subtle film that usually isn't recognized. You know, we're talking about Top Gun Maverick cinematography, and I just think Bones and All is doing so much more. So I wish it could get into some more technical categories. Taylor Russell winning in certain critic circles of like up and coming actor, you know, things like that. But I wish it had a better chance especially with how Guadagnino won for Call Me By Your Name. And if you could give any of the movies you talked about today one Oscar, what would it be? You know what? Let's just do it. Let's give Bones and All Best Cinematography. That's a good pick. Yeah, this was the DP, Arsene, who was under 30 when he made this film. Just amazing. And I think there are other movies that I mentioned that could get in or could win. Like, I think The Fablemans has a really good chance. I think some of these international films, I really hope they get into the final five. I think even that, you know, beyond winning is a big thing, especially when there are 15 films on the shortlist that are really, really good. So it's hard to say like Santo Mare, Close, Return to Soul. Giving that to one is just too hard for me right now. But what film would you give an Oscar for? I'm going big here. I'm giving my number one movie of the year best picture. I think Tar absolutely deserves it and would be one of the greatest best picture winners we've had in a long time. I mean, I would give Todd Field best director. That's another one. And best screenplay. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. He, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, I do love the Banshees of Sharon, and I love that screenplay. I think it is a year that I hope there is some spread happening. Yeah, I hope so too. It's so early. I'm so curious how it'll actually shake out and mm-hmm. like who the real front runners are and everything like that. But yeah, I love Tar so much, but because it doesn't really have a shot of winning Best Picture with this Academy, I'm relatively calm about the Oscars. Yeah. I'm like, just do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> we will be there to cover them. I'm not going to be emotionally invested, or at least I'm going to try not to be. <laughs> at least right now, yeah. <laughs> Tr- yeah, try is the key word there. Okay, and for our final segment, we've been talking about this for weeks, our sight and sound top 10s. I'm stressed. This was (laughs) such an undertaking. Mm -hmm. And like Guillermo del Toro said about his, like it changes daily. Ask me next Friday and you would have a different list. So I think I have a few honorable mentions that I just couldn't add, but things fluctuate all the time. And this isn't a definitive list, but... I think it's pretty good. It's me in a sense. Yeah, I was going to ask you just sort of how you came up with your list. I think because mm-hmm. it's one of those things where, so for listeners, what the Sight and Sound poll is, this poll happens every 10 years where they will invite directors for one poll and there's another, there's a critics poll as well. 
to decide what the greatest films of all time are. List making is a very arbitrary activity. It's very challenging, but this started in 1952 and has continued, you know, every 10 years they poll people and they make this list. So we got one this year in 2022. So we decided to do our list, but did you have criteria? Did you just follow your heart? What did you think of when you were making your list? Oh gosh, I'm curious if you had criteria. I think I just followed my heart and chose films that really impacted me or really surprised me in the way that filmmaking can be. Some of these were first time watches years ago, some were more recent, but it's ones that really inspired me into loving movies and wanting to pursue film in some way, shape or form. Some of these I studied in film class and you know, I took my first film class, really loved it and decided to double major in it. So some of those are on here. It's just movies throughout my life that stick with me and ones that I return to time and again, either to feel safe, feel comforted, or just to be wowed on screen by how movies can be and how film history has given us so many different kinds of films, too. I didn't want to choose one specific type of movie on my list. I tried to make it varied in some way, too. How about you? Yeah. Did you have criteria? No, No, I didn't. I just I asked if you did because I really didn't make my list in that way. I just completely followed my heart on this one. Some of them on this one, some of them are movies that I think people could look at the list and say, yes, objectively, that is one of the greatest films of all time. I agree. And others people will say, are you serious? And that's fine. Because Mm -hmm. for me, like these are all movies that have had where I can remember the first time where I watched it or I can remember a particular effect that it had on me or like they're all gateway movies to me, to other genres or directors or to, you know, thinking about exploring, talking about films and watching films in a really different way. So, yeah, I think I unsurprisingly have a number of films that are from the 70s on my list. I did want to make my list more varied, but I did have to also follow my heart and say, These are the ones that I absolutely cannot leave off the list. So I do have a couple of those. But yeah, overall, I look at my list. I'm really happy with it. And I know that I'll look at it tomorrow and think I should have swapped that out for something else. And that's okay, too. Mm -hmm. 10 Mm -hmm. is certainly not enough. Could have easily been 15 or Mm -hmm. 20, but we do not have the time for that. No. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I think another important thing that came up is like, when people friends ask me oh like what are some of your favorite movies like what should I watch to get into movies and I think a lot of these on my list are ones that I recommend to people Mm -hmm. too I guess we can just mention some honorable mentions first so ones that were really close maybe that were in there and we took out at the last minute yeah I had so again it's like what filmmakers do I want to mention what powerhouses need to be on a list what films will be remembered forever and I do still have some blind spots, like especially with some of the big critical films like Ozu has so many. And I put, I think, two of his on my Criterion Challenge for this year. So I need to get to him. So some films like his that were on a lot of top tens for directors and critics and made it on the top hundred aren't on mine. But some honorable mentions, I have High and Low by Kurosawa, obviously an incredible filmmaker and one that last year was one of my favorite films 
really surprised me. I love his filmmaking. Goodfellas by Scorsese. I mentioned time and again as being one of my favorite Scorsese films, and I know we both love him. Mm -hmm. Another really important filmmaker to me, one of my favorite directors, Hitchcock. I have Psycho and Rear Window. It's just impossible to choose. Mm -hmm. And then Lumet with 12 Angry Men, because that's been on my top five for the longest time. And I think between like my own top 10 and a sight and sound top 10 is a little different. Yeah. But that is one that I think consistently comes up as well. Yeah, no, those are all good ones. I'm just thinking now, I'm like, oh my God, I forgot to put so many in, but say la vie. It's okay. Um, <laughs> okay, so my first honorable mention, I think you'll be shocked, isn't on my list, and that is Barry Lyndon. Yeah. Wow. I, I made a last minute cut, so it's on the outside looking in, but Barry Lyndon is my favorite Kubrick. I sort of had that time period represented in other ways, so I mm-hmm. took it out. My Night at Mods, which is an Eric Romare film. It's the first of his six moral tales. This movie changed my life and to be dramatic, but it did. I watched it when I was like 19 and I was obsessed with Maud, this character. And this movie introduced me to the world of Eric Romare, who is my favorite French filmmaker. And I had to include In the Mood for Love. I've only seen in the mood for love twice which is why i i put it at the outside because mm-hmm. i don't have as personal of a relationship to it but i can't deny that it is simply one of the greatest films ever made so that was one that was in and out for me another one is burning the lee chang dong movie from 2018 it was my favorite movie of the year it blew me away i think it it's still one of my favorite korean films ever made it is mm-hmm. i think just exquisite formally but it was just, it was very recent. I wanted to stay away from super recent ones. I do have an exception, but alas, it's a wonderful life. I think this movie is perfect. And I just recently rewatched it on Christmas Eve and really thought about putting it in here. And I know you don't love this one, but Nicholas Rogue's film, Don't Look Now, it is just one that I return to again and again for how the editing works and how much I love horror and specifically horror films about grief and dread. So those are my honorable mentions that didn't quite make my top 10. Those are great. Yeah. I mean, I know that Don't Look Now is one of your favorite horror films, Halloween films, and Benny Safdie had It's a Wonderful Life mm-hmm. on his top 10 I as well. That. So that was fun to see. Okay. Getting into our lists, let's do these alphabetically just so unless you have preference, we can mention those. Let's do alphabetical. That's as far but as I could go. Like I couldn't rank. One. Yeah. It's too hard. Um, okay. So The first three movies that I will mention are all American films from the 1970s. Not a lot of variety there, but I couldn't leave any of them off. And the first one is Robert Altman's Three Women. This movie changed the way that I think about womanhood and movie making. So I had trouble picking an Altman film. I knew I wanted one. I almost did McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I almost did Nashville. But thinking back to the first time that I saw Three Women and how obsessed with this movie I became in Sissy Spacek and Shelley Duvall's perfect performances, the ways that they interact with each other, the colors, the dreamlike quality to it. It has this oneric feel to it. It's perfect. It's provocative. And it, it had a hold over me and it still has a hold over me that other films don't have. And I think that for me, if I had to pick an Altman film, it would be this one. And oh, yeah, it's it's one of those that I, I hesitate to recommend to people because it doesn't really have a plot. It's all about mood and the way that it makes you feel 
and how tense it is. I love it so much, so I had to include it. We talked about this on our movie trade episode. Mm -hmm. Okay, my first film, not going to be surprising to anybody, but I had to include Kubrick. This is my favorite Kubrickian film. It is 2001, A Space Odyssey, a movie that when I first saw it years ago, blew me away. It's iconic first act, just stands above the ending. So many parts of this movie are really well known in film history, but I find this to be a great rewatch and I've seen this in theaters too, which was just beyond Mm -hmm. words. I'm glad that it won special effects at the Oscars, but you know, underappreciated in that way, but I think critically very well known and one that I love and why I love Kubrick so much. 2001 is a movie I waited to see until actually after college. I had never seen it because it was one that I waited to see until I could see it in a theater. You know, when I was in college, I was watching a lot of these movies on my computer, as I'm sure you were too, which is crazy because of film classes. Right. (laughs) Like you would watch a clip on some projector in class and then you would go home and watch it on your computer, which is just absolutely crazy. But yeah, so I waited until... Um, When I lived in D.C., the AFI there was doing a retro screening of this, and it is one of the best movie-going experiences I've ever had. It's Mm -hmm. it's stunning, really. And even though it isn't my favorite Kubrick, I understand why people pick it. So you don't have any other Kubrick on your list? I don't have any Kubrick on my list, which I know feels crazy, but I admire Kubrick more than I love him. And I tried not to make a list so much about admiration as much as a list about personal connection. Okay. I mean, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. I, I knew you weren't going to pick 2001 over Barry, but you never know. Okay. My next one is a film we discussed fairly recently, and that is Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. Oh, my God. After I saw this movie, I thought about my life in a completely different way. So many directors throughout history have made movies about themselves. They do it all the time. They're doing it this year, too. The Fablemans, Bardo, Armageddon Time. Like it's, it's everywhere. But if you are going to make... A movie about you, about yourself, you better be self-aware and you better make it say something completely different. And I have another autobiographical movie on my list. This one is just one that made me feel anxious and vulnerable and alive. I talked about that on our episode too, but if I if it's going to be one of my favorite movies, I want to make it I want it to be a movie that just makes me feel like I'm walking on a tightrope just like the main character is. And that's how I feel when I'm watching this movie. The visuals also were just dazzling. I love the editing. And it also has, I think, one of cinema's greatest final shots. I also have a plan on my 40th birthday. We're going to rent out a theater and watch this. (laughs) (laughs) I'll make note. Yeah. Put it in your calendar. (laughs) 10 years. (laughs) My next film, also slightly autobiographical. And, you know, funny you mentioned Armageddon Time. I was going to mention before... They reference this film quite a bit, and for obvious reasons, this film is wonderful. It's Truffaut's The 400 Blows. This was a film class watch that introduced me to the French New Wave and really got me into that period of film history, and I just was totally consumed by, ended up focusing my major partly in French cinema because of this movie, and again, returning to it you can see how experimental and influential Truffaut was. The bird's eye shots and how he captured 
Antoine, it, it's a it's a specific and an important point of view as a child. And we talk about child actors a lot. And I think he does an incredible job. Looking back, I don't think I talk about 50s films or 40s or 60s even too that much. So this is one that I really, really love and is in my personal top five as well. I need to rewatch this. I haven't watched this since I was maybe like 18. Oh my so gosh. I'm due for a rewatch. This is, yeah, you really should. Okay, my next film, I think, of the ones on my list, has the best case for the argument that it is the most perfect film, and that is Chinatown. I saw this movie for the first time. I will never forget it. It was on a fall day. I saw it in theaters, and I felt like I was staring into the sun. I was just overwhelmed in such a way that I have trouble explaining because of the way that this film just feels so dark, yet it is blinding in how bright it is. What's happening on screen, I mean, there are many scenes that take place at nighttime that are very important, but much of the inner darkness that you experience when you're watching this and that's taking place for the characters happens when you are in broad daylight. And I always think of this with Houston's performance as Noah Cross, who is one of the most evil characters in film history. He's always wearing white. He's always captured in the sunlight for the most part. And he's wicked in the simplest, smallest ways. And I just, I love that. I love Jack Nicholson's performance. And I could talk on and on about, you know, its influences and why it's important in this transition from neo-noir to the new Hollywood and how capital I important it is. But even more than that, I think... It is just a flawless, perfectly constructed film. I would not cut a single thing from it. I would not make any recommendations to it. It feels, I think, fully transcendent. And by the time you experience the ending and everything that comes from that blistering slow burn, I really did feel like, and I do feel still, that it is one of the most perfect, essential pieces of art that exists. We will cover it next year in 2024 when it turns 50. I do want to rewatch this. It's been a long time. And yeah, you love it so much. I think I've seen so many more 70s films now that I should appreciate it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So, well, yeah, I'm excited for that. I just love movies where you leave the theater and you feel like you can't walk because Mm -hmm. of, you know, (laughs) whatever you just experienced on the screen so this is definitely one of those for me my next one we talked about earlier this year it is bergman's fanny and alexander oh this is my next one too oh amazing perfect perfect i think bergman i sometimes have trouble with but i understand that his understanding of filmmaking is just so pristine i love his use of color and the power that holds in his films and the grand production design of this five-hour-plus saga, the TV version of mm-hmm. Fanny and Alexander, that is perfect itself. And I don't know how they edited that down to four hours for the film, but it's just incredible to experience, to watch in different parts and see the transformation of these characters and what he's able to do. And again, we kind of have this coming-of-age story of Alexander, and it shifts between magical realism and political drama and family drama there's just so much happening and it really is a beautiful beautiful tale that i think viewers or you maybe even probably feel is a little bit unexpected coming from me so i was surprised 
on our international feature episode where we talked about Fanny and Alexander because I remember, so this has been one of my favorite movies for a long time and I was so scared that you weren't going to like it, but then you really loved it. And I do think that this is the Bergman movie I recommend to people who might be hesitant to watch Mm -hmm. Bergman. Like I know people have persona on their lists and that, that makes sense. I can give them that, but I'm hesitant to recommend films like persona even wild strawberries to people who might not like the they're just painfully depressing at times and i get why that's a that's a drawback to people but this one i think it's the magical realism like you mentioned it's themes i started i know i mentioned this on that episode but i started my tv watch because i've only seen the theatrical version and i started my plan of i watched the prologue in the first chapter Mm-hmm. on christmas eve and i'm going to scatter the episodes throughout the year according to the seasons so oh and i'm going to finish up <laughs> on christmas eve of 2023 wow. then i'll finally completed the tv version but even from that first section that i watched i was like oh i like this better i like how much more he puts into this yeah i, I think for all the reasons you mentioned though too like the the family the spirits the colors in this world and how it divides what Alexander is experiencing, what his mother is experiencing, how you can feel that through the color palette of the film and through the visuals is impeccable. I do think like it's it's a work of genius, truly. Okay, and my next one, which is also yours, so I love that we're very simpatico matching. today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is a perfect movie for me. This is Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. Mine's part one. Is yours one or two? So this was the tricky part for me because I famously have said that I like part two more. Part two mm-hmm. is like more of a movie for me. But I think that The Godfather, as in part one, is the most significant work of pop culture. Its influence is so great. And I think as a piece of pop entertainment works better than The Godfather Part 2. The Godfather Part 2 is so literary and it's it's beautiful and marvelous in its construction and its themes and performances. But The Godfather is just, it's an experience and it is also a perfect movie. I completely agree. And I think just this one I put on the list because for me as an Italian, this is the movie, right? Like this is... This is the Bible for Italian-Americans who like film. Even people who aren't incredibly into movies know The Godfather and its importance. It's the cinematography of Gordon Willis and the discovery of Al Pacino here and what he can do as Michael Corleone. is. It's just something that when I first saw it, it had a hold on me and it still does. Like seeing it in theaters this past year was just as breathtaking, maybe even more so now that I know more and now that I've experienced more life like it it really is something that i love deeply and how to include yeah i think it does such an amazing job in teaching you about the italian culture and what they do with the script the first 30 to 45 minutes you know we have that wedding sequence and watching the mom sing i just think back and just love every single minute of this film it's one that can be studied but also one that can be enjoyed on its own it's obviously in film classes, but it's also, you know, at AMC being shown and it was re-released for its 50th anniversary and people are still going to see it. So we covered it earlier last year for that anniversary on the pod. 
So I would also recommend checking that episode out because we can obviously go way more in detail there. Mm -hmm. But what is your next choice? So my next one is going to make you laugh because I watched it for the first time this past week. (laughs) (laughs) And that is this year's Sight and Sound number one, Jean Dielman. Oh my God. I don't know why I had put this off for so long. Why I had, I hadn't actively resisted it or anything like that. I just hadn't put in the time to watch this three hour plus movie that I knew was about life's subtleties and intricacies. And it's sort of bizarre that I hadn't watched it because given what I love about films, I love films that are about women. I love films that are slow in nature and that capture really small details. This film was really sort of built as something that I would appreciate but I just hadn't watched it until now and I'm so glad that I waited because seeing it in the theater was I just just left the theater in a daze made it to the train and just started pacing around my apartment thinking about this movie and what it did to me and the effect that it had on me and the fact that Chantelle Ackerman was 25 when she made this movie oh my god <laughs> to have that sort of wisdom and confidence and amount of self-assuredness in making a film like this that is about such mundane small things in this woman's life I mean you really are watching a woman at home for three hours and 21 minutes Mm. that is that is what this film is like you are observing the small details of her life but the way that she holds the camera in its stillness is revelatory because when she makes a decision to tilt the camera a certain way or to suddenly move the camera, it's like you're watching a thriller somehow. I I can't explain it. It is, it's something that I still, I mean, I haven't talked about it really with anyone yet because it's just been sitting in my head, but I, I really haven't had a film, an experience like this in a long time. And I do think it is one where I am happy that there are certain movies, certain big movies, as people would say that I haven't seen yet because I can still get these experiences like this mm-hmm. and can watch these movies that have been around forever, but that are new to me and that I can get something out of. And I think that there's something here that is, yes, it's a character study about one woman, but it's also, I think it's really bold in its exactness. And it can also be a universal experience for, you know, how women move through the world. So yeah, I loved it so much. I think it's a very deserving number one it's just an unexpected number one too but it was as equally an exhilarating experience i think for me again for watching this woman in real time do these tasks within her home and just go about her day but also finding the power in that and the thrill and how these days can blur together but also separating them very distinctly i'm happy that it was number one It's also pushing more people to go see this film, too, which I like and appreciate. Yeah, exactly. Okay, what is your next pick? My next one is one you had on your honorable mentions. It is In the Mood for Love, Wong Kar Wai's film. A perfect movie. It really is. There's just no other movie like it. It's an emotional experience. It's one that Everything Everywhere All at Once this year references, and I can see a lot of this movie in that film as well. I called it the canceriest of movies. (laughs) (laughs) The relationship between these two characters and these marriages that they're in and how they find connection to. You want to guess what Wong Kar Wai's zodiac sign is? 
Is he a cancer? He's a cancer. <laughs> Love that. There you go. <laughs> it all makes sense now. It all, exactly. <laughs> Mrs. Chan's wardrobe may be my favorite costume design ever. The most beautiful dresses that I've ever seen. And the way she holds herself and her character in this film. Oh my God. It's it's beautiful. It brings me to tears. The simple lines in this movie that could just destroy you. The way it ends, the the title cards. It's, I think, a film that has so much more power than it does on paper. Like, it probably sounds and reads like a great film, but the way that Wong Kar Wai plays with time and shows these characters, it's really in how he's capturing these spaces and these people and what they're feeling in conveying that through color or filters. It's just magical on another level. It is magical. It really makes me want to get into more of his films. I watched Happy Together last year, but also on my Criterion Challenge, I put Chunking Express because I haven't seen that one yet. And there's 2046, which is a room number of the hotel in In the Mood for Love, which is a fun little nod there. So yeah, just an amazing filmmaker and he needed to be on my list. Wow. The subtleties and the eroticism too. Oh my Mm -hmm. God. It's just... What he does with the camera is incredible. My next movie is one that is just a very personal one to me, and that is Robert Redford's Ordinary People. The way that the characters are written and the ways that Mary Tyler Moore and Timothy Hutton, Judd Hirsch, Donald Sutherland, the ways that they embody these characters and detail and depict how these characters experience grief and their own mental health crises. It's something that we take for granted. We have so many movies that try to address mental health, that try to address family issues, domestic issues that don't even come close to the brilliance of ordinary people. And I saw this movie in high school. This is my dad's favorite movie. (laughs) And I remember he was very upset with me because I told him it was too much for me at the time. You know, I was a teenager. I, li- I grew up in a similar environment, suburb of the Midwest. I was a swimmer. I, I think Conrad's struggle maybe felt a little too real to me at the time. And mm-hmm. I remember just thinking, like, why why is this his favorite movie? I don't understand. And then I watched it in college, and I was completely blown away by it to the point that I watched it again immediately and just had to take it all in again had to experience and like understand these little details of what these characters are going through and how they're expressing it. It's an all-timer performance from Mary Tyler Moore, for sure. But yeah, I just it's one that I I constantly think of as a movie that changed the way that I think about film. Okay, my next movie is not the most recent film on my list, but it's one that was on Bong Joon Ho's, and I was like, okay. Maybe this is acceptable to put on here because it's a movie that I found completely breathtaking, one that hits every time you rewatch it. I saw in the theater a couple months ago in 3D, which was Oh my God, I forgot that you did that. (laughs) This is George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road, my most oddball pick, but I think Again, in putting different kinds of movies on this list, like an action, adventure, thriller film that took me by surprise, 
but I think this is the addition that I put on my list that is also the most me and in the films I like and one that I always recommend to people if like that's kind of where they lean in their movie going or how I feel about them and I don't think it's on that many people's lists just you and Bong Joon-ho I know just us (laughs) (laughs) so I think from here I haven't seen the first few Mad Maxes but I definitely have to go back and do that before Furiosa comes out later this year okay my next movie is okay I'm gonna try not to cry this is the most recent entry on my list it's from 2017 and truly I am here today doing this recording because of this movie and my experience seeing it, and that is Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. I almost put There Will Be Blood on the list because I do think, like, There Will Be Blood is his best movie. Like, I fully admit that. I think just on a filmmaking level, There Will Be Blood is supreme. But I saw Phantom Thread sort of late, like a couple of weeks after it had been out. And when I saw the movie... I didn't know that much about it going in. I like going into PTA movies fairly blind. I try not to watch the trailer over and over again. Sometimes I do. But for this one, you know, it was it was a huge deal because Daniel Day-Lewis was in it. He had announced that year that he was retiring, that this was his last movie. And I was like, oh, you know, 1950s fashion designer in London. That sounds great. Can't wait to see it. But I don't know why I waited so long, but I did. And... There's a moment in the film when he is talking to the ghost of his mother and talking about how he dreams of her and how he thinks that, you know, when he wakes up, there are tears streaming down his face. And in that moment, I didn't even realize that I was crying, thinking about the scene. But then later on, when they go to the New Year's party and he's looking for her and you just see this like change in the generations and the ideals and how he just feels old all of a sudden. He looks and feels old the whole movie, but all of a sudden you just feel that his time has sort of come to an end. And I started feeling that way. I was like, oh, is this about Daniel Day-Lewis? No, you know, it's its own thing. But it was just a very overwhelming experience. And when the film ends, and it's so funny, I love the humor in this movie. I think it's it's just one of the funniest movies. But I had that same that same feeling of just like tears were streaming down my face. I couldn't believe that everything had happened so perfectly in that movie. PTA is always good at endings, but this one is just, I mean, they kiss me my girl before I'm sick. And that finale is just so perfect. And yeah, I mean, when I saw it, I left the theater and I remember thinking like, I'm the only person who likes this movie, who loves this movie, who's obsessed with it like I remember texting people and just like no one had heard of it or I remember like you didn't love it and a lot of people hadn't seen it yet so I was just like I'm on my own (laughs) Mm -hmm. loving this movie like I feel like it's my own little thing I didn't really at that point in my life like have a lot of friends who were into film since then I feel like I've through that movie I started like finding like film critics I like to read and other podcasts I like to listen to and It was through that that I realized like, oh, this is something I could absolutely do too. And like, I have things that I want to say about movies and it's, these are things that I love. And yeah, so without Phantom Thread, I would not be here doing Oscar Wilde. So time and again, you reference this film and I think that's so fitting. I don't think you've explained it that way before. So Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate that. My next movie is now my most recent. 
Uh, this is Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. We'll talk about Bong Joon-ho again. Why not? We, he deserves it. Always. Um, this is a movie that I've rewatched probably the most, I guess at least since it came out, like in such a short period of time. It's one that I just am totally enthralled by from the first time I saw it after it won the Palme d'Or. The moments that are in this film, I don't know. I think Bong Joon-ho is so crafty, so genius. The way he always talks about environmental issues and contrasts that with family dynamics and other dramas happening, I think just are so perfect in this film, in Korean culture and the spaces. This movie is so beautiful. And he has such a way with words. We've talked about this on the pod. I think most of these movies we've talked about on the pod before. There's definitely a reason for that. I mean, we love talking about the movies that we really love. So mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of these you can find episodes on. I think we've done multiple episodes on Parasite, mm-hmm. thinking about it now. And that year at the Oscars, I mean, like predicting the Oscars, there's also like memories of that. And when we started the podcast that year and oh it winning God, yeah. and taking the Oscars and the Academy by storm, it just is that movie that you wanted to love and everybody loved and has stayed with me. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Parasite also perfect film. I've never been so surprised by a twist in a movie before because I've read so many thrillers and mysteries and I've seen so many on screen. I feel like I usually try to guess what the twist is or think I can figure it out. And this one, no way. Like, even though he lays out clues and shows all of these details so perfectly, I had Mm -hmm. no idea what was coming at any given moment and that was just such a thrilling movie going experience and Mm -hmm. it was also just so cool because when i saw this it was a sold out thursday night preview screening for a korean thriller just Mm -hmm. amazing it's like we don't we don't see that we don't talk about that it's always like okay what is the next marvel movie that's going to make a billion dollars but this really was a hit. Like people went to go see this. People told their friends to go see this who had never seen any Korean cinema before. And mm-hmm. that's the magic of the movies. Yeah, exactly. I just remembered our long lost predictions episode of this year <laughs> <laughs> before we even had a name for our podcast on SoundCloud. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> the days. <laughs> no outline. <laughs> Stop. Secondhand well, embarrassment. No, I can't. Okay, so my next movie, I think, is also your next movie, which we talked about Love this it. year. Again, we have another overlap. That is Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes, another movie about artistic achievement, about being addicted to your work, yes, but also just a stunning feat of filmmaking. The entire sequence, that dance, is... Mm-hmm everything you've heard of and more this is a film like of all the movies on my list please go watch this if you can if you can find it playing in a theater it is actually alamo draft house is doing it this month um, as part of a series so if you have a draft house in your area look up when it is playing go see it you will not regret it it's a remarkable achievement and one that i love returning to not just for its use of technicolor but it feels like this beautiful dark fairy tale that had been waiting for me for my whole life until I watched it. Yeah, like earlier when you mentioned with Jean Dielman and having these new experiences with movies that you haven't seen before. This was one for me a year or two ago now and just completely blown away with the way that they handled cinematography, 
now 75 years ago it like mind-boggling mm-hmm. how they worked on that sequence and adapting the story again we've talked about it before go listen to our episode and i would love to see this in a movie theater and to imagine back then in 48 you know imagining sitting through this and what they thought and how they conversed about it afterwards just feels like a totally different world mm-hmm Okay, since we matched there, I'll go with my penultimate film, which is Spirited Away. Hayao Miyazaki. Again, I wanted to include something different, but Spirited Away is on my top 10 of all time. It was kind of a mix-up between Howl's Moving Castle and this, because I think Miyazaki's animation, sticking to hand-drawn animation is such a talent. And for him to be making another movie that we're getting this year, I am beyond excited. But this movie is for adults and children. I think that's an important benchmark, but is so inspirational and so creative because of how he creates these different worlds. I mean, it's really nothing you would ever imagine. And I think diving into this mind of these anime worlds, I'm glad that he kind of brought that to America. I don't think we had a lot of that before of really Japanese animation in general in America. And I recently went to Radio City and went to a concert of the composer, Joe Hisaishi, who worked with him on so many of his films, but getting to see snippets of these movies on the screen was just so impressive and beautiful and heartwarming. And I think Spirited Away is just one of those films. It's on the, I think, top 100 sight and sound list as well. And it really shows you that animation can do so many other things than just appeal to like one population okay final picks what is yours let's do it mine was the recently dethroned champion of the sight and sound poll and that is vertigo vertigo is i think so it's it's hard because with hitchcock there's so many directions you could go i love Mm -hmm. rebecca with my whole heart i think that is like another perfect film I love Rear Window, I love Psycho, I love North by Northwest. But for me, Vertigo is a perfect Hitchcock movie for many reasons, but I love its symbols, I love its metaphors. But even more than that, I love how confounding it is and how I feel like I will never fully understand it. I love ambiguity in films. It's like one of my favorite things is when a director trusts the audience and doesn't feel the need to explain everything or feel the need to answer all of those questions that are there and this movie doesn't do that it poses a lot of questions its characters are beguiling and the women in this movie if we think about not just kim novak and the double that exists in this film but if we think of midge and barbara belgetti's great character there too but the ways that it shows how men are afraid of women, but also what men can do to women and the fear there and the how frightening that is. But I also think Scotty, Jimmy Stewart here, this character is maybe the greatest Hitchcock lead that we have. It's really, it's one that's hard to explain. I saw it again in theaters last week and this week off has been really good for me. I got to see so many movies. Mm. <laughs> it was wonderful. But seeing it in a theater, I was just overwhelmed by how it felt like the type of Hitchcock movie that when I think of Hitchcock, I think of this one in particular and how he knows exactly how to make a shot and what the camera needs to do to evoke a particular feeling. And for me, 
the film that gets under my skin of his the most will always be Vertigo. The way that it just ends and you're like, what? How how did any of this happen? What does all of it mean? I will never know. And I love that feeling. I saw this, I think it was my second watch, but in the Castro Theater in San Francisco on a big mm. screen as a double oh my God. feature. And it's it takes place there. That's crazy. It was just Very wonderful. Cool. Yeah. Okay. And my final pick, I mentioned already, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. Malick is such a unique director, but I think this film that he made, which maybe isn't his most well-known, but I think to me was his most impressionable. The story that he's telling, it's my favorite cinematography in any film. It feels a little lofty at times, but I think is super grounded in religion, in this family story, and is really an emotional journey that takes me there every single viewing. I love the acting. I love having read about things on set, what was improv you know, that whole scene with Brad Pitt at the table throwing a fit was him doing that. And, you know, Jessica was kind of thrown aback, but it fits in the film so well. And in a similar way to the Fablemans of, you know, you have these dynamics in the family of your mother and father and how they influence and affect you and that being your world and you know what comes before and after in life and again very thematic and fun to interpret of all the movies i've seen it might be the most rewatched film it's a great pick i think it's terrence malick's best movie i mean i know there's there's debate around that you could pick a number of other ones i love days mm-hmm. of heaven that's probably my number two and terrence malick has a way of understanding humanity on a very deep level and its connection to nature and that's something Mm -hmm. i always connect with in his movies so yeah the tree of life is a great pick great lists oh amazing films i love our lists and we'll do this tomorrow and they'll be different i know i'm like (laughs) oh god what did i forget (laughs) what's gonna be funny is like family and friends will listen to this and they'll be like wait a minute where's this movie i'll be like wait (laughs) oh yeah i definitely forgot that Thank you for the reminder. Well, that was a mega episode again, but I feel like today it was good to just like wrap up the year, think about our favorite movies of this year, our favorite movies of all time as we like, head into another year of movie going and of our show. I'm so excited mm-hmm. to see like what's in store for us this year with upcoming releases and the Oscars, of course what all will happen there, but also just how our show will continue to Mm -hmm. reach new listeners. And I don't know. It's been so fun to do this. Yeah, I think this is a great way to sum up 2022, start 2023, talk about our favorite movies of all time. I think we like to do that a lot. And it's what inspired us to start the podcast in the first place. I loved your story about Phantom Thread. And I think this will continue to keep us motivated to into the new year. You'll hear about some of those 2022 films as we talk about award season continuing so lots of content coming and next week on oscar wild we'll be talking about 2023 and what's coming some of our most anticipated films there are quite a few blockbusters i am very excited for this year but Mm -hmm. we'll try to mention as many as we can of what we know so far and we know that changes throughout the year and there are still some from 2021 that we'll mention. It's crazy, but I'm ready. 
Yeah, so for new listeners, or if you didn't listen to our movie preview last year, we do things a little bit differently. So we won't say like, here are top five most anticipated movies of the year or anything like that. We really do run through almost everything. So movies that could get Oscar buzz, like Killers of the Flower Moon. Yes, we will talk about that. We, of course, will talk about Oppenheimer and Barbie. But we will also showcase some potential hidden gems We will talk about some funny, maybe chaotic movies we're excited for, like that Adam Driver dinosaur movie, 65. Anything is fair game. Also, Megan will already have been released by the time this episode airs. So the fact that we're getting campy, crazy films already, I am just so ready for this year. I'm so excited to see Megan. I already have my ticket. Well, thank you all for listening. If you like our show, please feel free to rate, review, and follow. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Wilde Pod. And if you really like our show, you can subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. There we have fun bonus series. So you can find more of that there. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you very soon. Bye.